Yes, thank, thanks, uh, thanks for that. And thanks for the invitation to come and talk very fascinating papers on Friday and, and obviously following through and continuing today. Just a quick aside on, on, on Mary's one, which is very interesting. Um, um, the pub museum is something which I think is an interesting heritage uh, relic. It was quite popular in the 19th century and I'm fascinated by the idea of, of pubs as also museums. But anyway, that's just an aside. What I'm actually talking about today uh, is uh, about the MA Folklore Studies that was set up uh, two years ago at my university. So I'll talk a bit about the MA uh, Folklore. I'll talk about um, the content in particular of the module that I teach, which is around folklore landscape, and hence my presence at this uh, interesting colloquium. Um, uh, I'll look at some of the broader themes that we run through all the sessions that we do around folklore and landscape, and then sort of conclude with some pointers where I think it intersects with the themes that are central to, to this, this event and the one on Friday as well. So, we set up this MA in Folklore Studies uh, two years ago. It's the only MA, in fact, it's the only real programme of, of higher education uh, studies in folklore in England. Um, there was an MA in Folklore a number of years ago at Sheffield run out by what was called SECTOR, the Centre for English Culture, Tradition and Language at Sheffield, but which, which was closed down by Sheffield University some 10, 50, that's probably 15 years ago now. So uh, we are the only one in England. There is another MA in Folklore Studies um, in Scotland run out of the Elphinstone Institute from Aberdeen University, which does it obviously in the Scottish higher education system, it's called an MLIT in Ethnology and Folklore, which focuses on Scotland. The one we do focuses on Britain, uh, although it allows students to engage with landscapes uh, across, across the globe as well, if it meets all the aims and outcomes and the usual things in a, a postgraduate taught ed education sort of program on this. I mean, the fact that um, we are the only uh, MA in Focal Studies tells you something quite interesting about the development of higher education in this country in the first place, um, when you compare it to the fact that there are MA Focal Studies, uh, a lot of them in North America and also in Northern Europe as well. So it's a very interesting story we won't go into today. But obviously there's the challenges uh, when you try and set up something like this because the absence is often interpreted by marketing departments as the fact there is no interest which is exactly what happened to me in trying to develop this program um, uh, there was nothing to compare it to uh, and so they say well you know there's no interest well in fact obviously um, what the MA has shown is there's a huge interest as we all, all of us here know there's a huge interest general interest in folklore uh, even when uh, people don't necessarily know what folklore is we can tell them that what you're interested in is folklore. So we're kind of tapping in in this, this MA to a very rich team of people who are coming back into their education after 20, 30, 40 years. Quite a lot of them already have postgraduate uh, uh, MAs as well, but want to come back because they want to, in a sense, understandably validate their interest in an academic way in, in folklore, and the things that they've been interested and passionate about in their lives. So, um, I'll focus now particularly then on my module. We have we have several modules, obviously. We have the usual um, theory and methodology modules, the practical ones. We, we go through the ethics process of interviewing, doing participant observation, all the general field skills of a, a folklorist. Then we have a module which is about migration of beliefs and traditions, um, both in terms of the migration of British populations overseas, but also then new migrant populations to Britain and how that enriches British folklore. And that, that ties tie in a bit with some of the issues raised today about nation nation identity and folklore who owns who owns what is british folklore today it's multicultural um what about the legends and associations with the landscape well they 
reflect less upon that, but actually you know, these are living traditions that are developing. So there's lots of interesting issues that arise about nation and identity and folklore and our landscape. Um, and then we also have one which is on contemporary tradition uh, and like contemporary legends as well. And then mine, which is on folklore and landscape. So what is my module about? Well, it has two sort of uh, general aims. Uh, one of those is to explore the human interaction with the landscape through custom and ritual over time and how it, those are represented in the present. And the kind of second overarching aim is how has the landscape been defined through a reimagining of the past and negotiations over its supernatural and mundane ownership. So those are kind of the overarching aims and outcomes um, from those studying this module. How that breaks down in reality, the sorts of things that we pick up on, which are which touch upon the things that have already been discussed here, and also also with what Mary was talking about. So in my workshops, I'll just take you through them briefly. So we have one which is looking at place names and folklore. And in that, for example, uh, we look at Druid names in the landscape and how they came into popular usage um, and the interactions and the influence there of the early modern antiquarians such as Stukeley, who were providing these Druidic interpretations of prehistoric monuments. Uh, where they didn't exist before, and how did that language of druids and druidry end up in popular folklore and popular place names, which is an interesting uh, and ultimately um, uh, unknowable, but we try and look at what are the modes of transition and transmission of those sorts uh, of names. Also, um, again, following on from Mary, about barrow names as well, the folkloric names associated with prehistoric barrows. What do they actually tell us about popular law? Where do these names come from? Um, how, what do they mean? How they change over time? We then look at things like, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the sacred in the post-Reformation landscape. So we look at the pre-Reformation pre uh, interpretation of uh, the landscape that they see, and particularly the megalithic structures within it. And then we're looking at a post-Reformation landscape. Um, which Alexander Walsh has, has written a very interesting and detailed book about, and there's lots more to explore about the post-Reformation. Ronald's also talked about this as well, post-Reformation, long Reformation folklore, and how it relates to continuing tradition and custom in the landscape. So we look at that, but also focus on things like hangman stones, which the famous Crawford in archeological circles was fascinated by from his work on um, looking ordnance survey maps. Um, there are about 20 of these hangman stones, and each of them has a very similar legend uh, which is the legend of a thief, uh, normally a sheep thief, but sometimes a deer, who basically rests his back. He's got the, the, the stolen animal on a rope around his uh, neck on his shoulders, and he leans back on a stone to rest his ill-got gains. And the next day he's found dead because he's strangled by the rope um, as the sheep uh, rests on the other side of the stone. About 20 of these is a classic example of a migratory legend. Where do they come from? The first dates are around the 18th century onwards. So how again did this legend spread? Fascinating to try and understand and explore in the landscape. Um, we then look at legendary personalities and historic figures in the landscape uh, from kings to criminals. And obviously we make a sort of little community case study there about Robin Hood uh, and, and uh, not uh, Sherwood Forest and the ways in which that legend and those legends have been told, retold, both in oral form and in literary form, and, and how it's represented today, and how people engage with it, the Robin Hood Festival there, and how people, lots of reenactors, lots of people having good fun associated, obviously, with the tree. Um, so we like trying to explore these things in the long age time. 
We also look at encounters with supernatural beings in the landscape, um, obviously hauntings, but also the role of the devil in those sorts of popular traditional legendary associations with landscape features, both natural uh, and human. Um, and I'll talk a bit briefly about uh, Devil's Dyke as one of my student projects, for example, down in Sussex. It's a, it's, obviously, it's an SSSI and very popular resort, uh, popular sort of uh, day out trip for people on the South Coast. And looking at then again how people today understand and explore and like uh, and feel about those legendary associations and their place names. Um, we also then look at change. Uh, I look at uh, the enclosure movement uh, and how enclosure and, and, and massive uh, transformational change in the countryside, um, particularly enclosure landscapes, parliamentary enclosure from the 18th century onwards. Obviously, John Clare is a source there on the interpretation of what happens to legends and traditions and people's interactions with the landscape in rapid change when the common fields are completely taken away, have new roads put in, obviously a hedged uh, surveyor's landscape moves in, um, you know, old pathways, old associations are lost with the landscape. Uh, what, are, what is the long-term and both the short-term consequences of that for folklore and people's interaction with the landscape? Uh, and mechanisation and electricity as well, in terms of how does that inform and shape the ways in which we look uh, and interact, both in an urban environment, rapidly obviously urban environment from the 18th, 19th, sorry, 19th century onwards, uh, but also um, ways in which it changes perceptions, changes perceptions of night and day and the way in which we see the landscape night and day. We often, we often associate landscape only with the daylight hours, but obviously the landscape um, does get transformed and shaped and shifted and attract legends which are only associated with the nighttime as well. And finally, we end with looking at folklore in the urban environment and questions such as, uh, you know, is there such a thing as urban folklore or is it just folklore in the urban landscape? Um, so we have a good old chew over those sorts of issues. And finally, we look at folklore and landscape in fiction, uh, focusing obviously on people like Alan Garner's work as well, but also things like Hookland by David Southwell's fantastic. A recreation of a, a mythical county from the 1970s, which I think is a wonderful way in which people today are kind of reimagining an, an imagined landscape, but also one which has a kind of proximity to reality. Underpinning all those themes that we're looking at um, are some deeper ones. Obviously, as I already mentioned, we're looking at identity as a concept, both local and national, the ways in which people interact or do not interact with their landscape or associated with um, legends or other forms of folklore. We look at tourism and folklore tourism for landscape places and spaces. Uh, we, for example, do a session on Mother Shipton's Cave, which is obviously a popular tourist attraction. We look at how Mother Shipton's Cave is marketed, both in terms of its landscape, but also how the legend of Mother Shipton is marketed in relationship to that landscape. And we use TripAdvisor as a source, fascinating for something like that. You go through the comments, what is it that people are going to Mother Shipton's Cave for? Uh, what is the experiences they come out? And TripAdvisor, without going through the cost and expense and ethics forms of doing a survey and exit interviews, TripAdvisor is an interesting way of exploring what it is that people are getting out of these places and spaces. Uh, and how, how do they come out with it? What, you know, is it, is it actually the legend that draws them there? Is it just because they want to go uh, see the cave? What is it? Uh, how and how? What is their experience? Other than the usual ones of the car park is full and the food is too expensive, of course, uh, the usual things. Uh, but that, that's quite interesting. 
Um, thirdly, we also look at the absence of heritage interpretation for some of these sites which have legendary associations. This comes back to something that both uh, Lisa Tallis and Andrew Snedden were talking about as well. There are so many places out there which have still have local legends, still have folkloric associations, which are important to local people. And some of those also um, are important to other groups, as Rosie talks about, that's neo-pagan groups, for example. Yet they have no interpretation at all. And we look at the ways in which um, that lack of interpretation, does it lead to a dwindling decline and ending of those folkloric associations, or does it actually reinvigorate it? In other words, people invest more in it because there is no interpretation. They're not being guided by uh, you know, mis uh, interpretation boards and things like that. They can sense reinventing and reimagining their experience, their experiential side of their visits to there. Um, and then I just want to move on now to looking at some of the ways in which students, what do they get out of this, this module? What is it? And about their own understanding of the landscape and folklore and its association. This probably comes through best in one of the assignments, which is a case study. So they have to pick up a, a particular place or space uh, and look at its folklore, uh, folklore associations, but then also look at how people interact with it, provide the historical context. And it's quite interesting what the students have chosen over the last two years. Some of them, um, some of them are well-known places. I've already mentioned Devil's Dykes. I had a brilliant podcast. We, we do podcast blogs and essays. Uh, they have a choice in this case study. We had a brilliant podcast exploring Devil's Dyke. Uh, we had another one which is well-known. We had another one about Foulness Island, also quite well-known for those who are Ministry of Defence site. Um, we also had one about Windsor Great Park, Kelly Inn, uh, Bride's Mound in Glastonbury and the Abbas Giant. So we have all those sorts of ones which are, you might call have a national profile. But then quite a few of the students chose ones which were local to them. Um, which perhaps very few people know about, uh, maybe just as dog walking sites, but actually once they started digging, found they had a rich folklore. So it was a re-engagement, a re-understanding of local places of landscape significance. Um, and some, one, for example, was some dean holes or swallow holes in Essex, uh, which had some really interesting um, both history, heritage, but largely abandoned. No one really knows much about them. But there they are. They have been important to people in the past. Um, and are open to interpretation today. A number of wells, as you imagine, holy wells, abandoned uh, holy and healing wells uh, cropped up, um, some more high profile than others. We had a really interesting series of blogs um, about St. Anne's Well in Brighton, which actually was a major tourist and visitor attraction in Brighton and Hove in the 19th century. Um, real bustling sort of place, but today largely abandoned. Uh, recent developments render it really quite dull um, and nondescript and yet it has such a vibrant history such a vibrant history and such vibrant associations if you dig back into the past and we've got someone talking about six hills in um, Stevenage which are a series of unusual Roman Roman uh, burial uh, mounds unusual um, obviously in the British English landscape and they're right in the middle of a housing estate Newtown Stevenage um, and again very rich and how do people engage with that today you've got these extraordinary uh, ancient monuments, hills, right smack in 1970s housing estates with no interpretation whatsoever. And yet, uh, and new, what happens is that new folklore grows up. There's an old folklore to it and a new folklore grows up by people who don't know what they are. But um, any such features that attract new associations, whether it's hauntings or phantom hitchhikers along the road next by or whatever, these all act as loci and foci for new folklore as well as exploring the old folklore. So just to, just to wrap up um, some... Um, general broad themes which I think come out of all this from the experience of running this for two years and the experience of the students experience in this uh, and 
sort of things we want them to think about because some of them want to go into heritage jobs some of them want to go into museums and libraries and tourism as well so we, we've got to get them asking and thinking about these ways in which we situate this in, in our contemporary uh, world um, at the time. So uh, one is about issues about you know, practical, the practical ones about maximizing and promoting local little known spaces and places through folkloric associations as a, as a, as a practical agenda point. Um, more conceptually but related would be, um, you know, is and should folklore itself be considered as landscape heritage over and above the actual landscape feature itself? Is, is, is a moment, a, a piece of folklore, a, an example of landscape heritage without having, say, the physicality of it uh, or time-specific interpretation of it? Thirdly, the value of storytelling um, is I reckon really important. And I've, I, we, we do use the, the, the legends map and we do use the um, uh, telling tales um, in the module. So we have been engaging with English heritage work on this and students really enjoy it. And we, we use Stanton Drew and the, that little mini video you did for Stanton Drew uh, and the stone circle there and, and the petrified dancers. And so we, we look through that and explore how, why, why English heritage is invested in this in a very positive way, this isn't critical. Um, and, and we, what, what, why is it English heritage um, in investing both money, time and energy in engaging people with the folklore of their sites when they already have their other history and prehistory, uh, more dominant ones. Um, so that storytelling is really important, I think, in terms of ownership and re-engagement. And when we talk about folklore as multicultural, um, all those issues about who actually goes out into the rural landscape um, all arise and who owns it. And folklore, I think, storytelling is one way of re-engaging or engaging for the first time with, with people. Uh, and finally, um, that idea of visitor attraction, which, which Lisa in particular was picking up about the, the ways in which um, fact, faction, fact, fiction, legend, etc. if you get the balance right, can act as a, as a re-energizing re uh, and re-engagement lo of local communities and other communities with local uh, sites of heritage interest. So that's me done, thank you.